Hi, I'm David Green, and welcome to episode five of season 20 of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. We've got a special episode for you on the show today. I'm talking to Ravin Jejuthasen, Senior Partner at Mercer, and John Boudreau, Professor Emeritus of Management and Organization at the University of Southern California, the Marshall School of Business, who are together releasing a new book, their fourth together, called Work Without Jobs. Now, we're not saying in the near term that jobs are going to go away. But I think in William Gibson's infamous quote, you know, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. What we're seeing are many, many organizations applying the elements of this new work operating system to move to ever more agile ways of working. Um, You know, some have maybe cynically said that, uh, you know, this title is clickbait and actually far from it. Um, You know, what the title really points to is the growing inability of the current work operating system with its indexing and legacy of jobs um, and that core foundation of jobs being the elemental unit of work and that by extension, that one-to-one relationship between a degree, a job, and a job holder um, is is fundamentally incapable of keeping up with this with this emerging world of work. In this episode, we will explore with John and Ravin what they're calling a new work operating system to help people to better understand the link between qualifications, learning, and jobs, and move away from the current system. This new work operating system is not meant to be a complete answer, but I think one needs to begin with the opportunity to deconstruct jobs, to see workers as a whole person, to see qualifications as elements of learning rather than degrees. If we can give people that freedom and give them a language for that, I think there are just optimization and, and, and uh, solution options that appear as opposed to when, which I think is mostly the case, people are kind of stuck in this legacy system of jobs because they haven't had a way to think about it another way, for example. Throughout the episode, John and Ravin discuss how they see the future of work and jobs evolving, including the core principles behind their new work operating system. We look at examples of organizations like Unilever, Genentech and DHL, who have already started to move towards this future system. We also discuss the impact on leadership of moving to a new work operating system and what that entails for existing leadership behaviours. We also look at what this means for HR, people analytics and society in general and look at how you can get started with adopting this new way of working. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to welcome not one, but two brilliant guests of the Digital HR Leaders podcast, Ravin Jesuthasen and John Boudreau, whose eagerly awaited new book, Work Without Jobs, will be available at the end of March and is available for pre-order now. Welcome to the show. Second time for both of you on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Um, Can you provide listeners with a brief introduction to you and your work? And I'll come to you first, John. Well, thank you, David. And let me just thank you and everyone listening uh, for the opportunity. It's, as you say, we have a long history together, and it's an absolute pleasure to be back on again, and with my good friend and colleague, Robin J. Suthasen, as well. A uh, brief introduction for me. I've kind of been in this world of, uh, of uh, human capital and human resources and strategy for about 40 years now. 
was a professor at Cornell for the first 22 of those, and then moved to uh, University of Southern California and was a professor there uh, for about 15 years, and also a research scientist in the Center for Effective Organizations. So I'm now uh, semi-retired, living in Santa Fe, New Mexico in the U.S., and uh, still affiliated with the university through the Center for Effective Organizations, doing work there as I have before on the future of work, people, strategy, etc. Again, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you on the show, John. And, and Ravin, if you'd like to introduce yourself. Sure. It's lovely to be with you again, David. It, it feels like a lifetime ago that we recorded our first <laughs> podcast and the world was a very different place. Um, so always so much fun to do this with, with John. Um, so my background, maybe not quite as long um, as, as John's, I've been um, in consulting for about 30 years. Um, most of my work um, has been around uh, human capital work and automation. I have the privilege right now of taking care of Mercer's transformation business globally. And uh, in that capacity, have um, helped work with a number of very large organizations in helping them re-envision work, implement the sorts of things that we're going to spend some time talking about. And um, my my um, sort of sort of involvement with the future of work sort of goes back to when John and I first started collaborating, which was back in 2007. And, uh, you know, four books later, and now here we sit. Um, I also have the great privilege of having uh, done a lot of work with the World Economic Forum. Um, I sit on their steering committee on work and employment um, and have done a number of research studies on the future of work. And more recently, have started collaborating with Caltech, where we are standing up a future of work course. So great to be here, David. Well, it's great to have you both on the show. It's like two for the price of one almost. You know, I get asked fairly often, you know, who do I go to to learn? And, and the two of you are, are two of the names that always come up. So uh, great to have you on. So we're going to talk principally about the book, um, you know, your new book, Work Without Jobs, How to Reboot Your Organization's Work Operating System is due to be published, as I said, at the end of March. But for those listening who are whose interest is peaked, it is available for pre-order now. So let's start with a bit of an introduction to the book. You know, why did you write it? What's new? And, and, and how does this build on your previous work? As you said, Robin, it's your fourth book together. So Robin, I'll come to you first this time. Yeah. So, so this book, David, really builds on our last two books, uh, Lead the Work, Navigating a World Beyond Employment and Reinventing Jobs, a four-step approach for applying automation to work. So the first of those books, Lead the Work, um, really started to explore how work was moving beyond the organizational boundary and beyond the traditional confines of employment. We wrote extensively about um, different uh, ways in which work could be accomplished through non-employment means, particularly the use of gig work. Um, And the second book looked at how automation and humans can best be combined and presented um, leaders, both books did really, with decision-making frameworks to enable them to make their, uh, make informed choices about work and its evolution. And this book, like those previous books, you know, has um, several dozen examples and case studies of those frameworks in action. I think at the heart of both of both those books, um, and certainly at the heart of this one is the principle and the big idea of work deconstruction as a critical and foundational element for increasing the agility of organizations to respond to threats like the pandemic that we're in the middle of, as well as opportunities uh, presented by forces like digitalization. 
And this book in particular really delves into deconstruction and presents it as a fundamental element of the new work operating system that we talk about that we think is absolutely essential to navigating this emerging world of work that we're in. Right. And, and John, anything to add to that? And, and maybe the experience of writing the book, I guess, during the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic now, but during the pandemic, you know, maybe are some of the ideas that, that, that you've written about, are you seeing them happening quicker, perhaps, um, due to the experience of the last two years? Thanks, David. I think Robin put it very well in terms of history. I think the only history I would add is it turns out, as I look at my previous work back into the 1990s, uh, many of your viewers have kindly purchased book, the book that Pete Bramstead and I wrote, Beyond HR, which was kind of the beginning of the emergence into the trade book world. And uh, what, what Pete and I found uh, writing that book about the strategic uh, impact of people and organizations was, uh, again, your viewers will probably remember the example of the sweeper at Disney and the example of, of trying to figure out how that sweeper might be strategically valuable. And I realized when I go back that we had to take that job apart because there is sweeping and then there is guest interaction or uh, guest entertainment. And they're both a part of the job and they both pay off in very different ways. So it turns out that this idea that inside a job are the, ele the atomized elements that really give you the clues to solve a puzzle, like what is the, even something as simple as what is the strategic value of this job, you kind of have to take it apart. So then, as Robin said, what if we source talent in ways that are not regular, just regular full-time employment? Well, you don't, you don't end up with a contractor taking over a job very often or a gig worker or a volunteer, but you do end up with them taking parts of a job. And so the puzzle is really well weighed. I haven't, I still have these regular full-time people and I want to keep them because I need them, but they're doing a very different set of tasks. So that, that, then there's automation, et cetera. Uh, and I think with the pandemic accelerated everything, of course. And, um, I think what we saw was just take one easy example, maybe two, when you move people from onsite to remote, they had more opportunity to craft their work. Now they, in fact, the requirement to craft their work at the elemental level. They may still have the same job description, but what they're doing is very, very different. Actually, that's true even for on-site folks. Think about shifting a production line from making auto parts to face masks, et cetera. That would be one of the very easy examples. And in that case, you still have employees working on that production line, and they're having to take their jobs apart and recraft them so that they can shift to making this new thing. And, and of course, there are example after example after example. And I think, David, one of the, one of the fun things about writing this book, as you know, obviously no one has fun with the pandemic. But one of the interesting things writing this book was the pandemic illuminated so many of the things that we feel are fundamental, thinking about this idea of atomizing and then reconstructing at, or reinventing. It, it just, it, it, as in as in so many ways, David, that it just shone a huge light on things that were always there, but that really hadn't needed to be addressed, uh, perhaps as in, with such an imperative. Uh, also, the interesting thing is we're not going to snap back to the way it was before. So another very interesting element of writing this book during this period is that I think the book becomes, I think, more accessible, more timely, because these issues are front and center now. And, and when you see them, for me anyway, when I teach this with executives or others, once I 
reveal in a way or describe to them this idea of deconstruction and reinvention, you almost see it everywhere then. It's like making you aware of your tongue or something like that. You know, suddenly it's like, oh, yeah, that was there all the time. Uh, hidden beneath the surface, perhaps, not addressed perhaps before, but now available to help solve some of the riddles that have come up with all the disruptions that we've seen. Uh, that's, that's really helpful. And I think we might return to, to some of those themes throughout our discussion. Ravin, you know, one of the big ideas in the book is, is, is this new work operating system. You know, what, what does it mean? Uh, and, and, and what does the phrase work without jobs mean? Yeah. So, so David, maybe I'll just start with the principles that underpin this new work operating system, and I'll get into some of the elements as we go through this conversation. But uh, the four principles that we found to be essential to this new work operating system, one is, you know, starting with the work. It sounds trivial. It sounds almost trite. But it's really about starting with the work. You know, what are the current and future tasks and not just the existing bundle, i.e. the existing jobs? So kind of transcending that legacy of jobs is really kind of that first sort of basic principle. The second, as we talked about that John and I explored in um, our previous book, achieving the optimal combinations of humans and automation, having that really in-depth understanding of where does a specific type of automation substitute certain types of human endeavor? Where does it augment the work of the human, sort of allowing them to be almost super productive uh, by, by letting them focus on the best of who they are. And where does it transform or create new work? Um, the third principle is instead of limiting ourselves to then, you know, organizing a job around <clears throat> the remaining tasks, excuse me, um, considering the full array of human work engagements. So, you know, is, it empl- is employment the best way of getting work done? Um, in, in that instance, should it be someone in a job? Should it be a, um, a freelancer? Should it be a gig worker? Should the work be organized, maybe done by employees, but employees flowing to projects and assignments or a variety of other internal arrangements? You've, uh, David, certainly many of your guests have talked about this notion and the rapid rise of internal marketplaces. Um, you know, we explore that in some detail because as you apply automation, it the marketplace often is the best way to create and build on that more agile way of getting work done so that you can continuously keep automating and creating new work for talent. And then the fourth dimension is once you've considered the full array of work engagements, allowing talent to flow to work versus being limited in traditional fixed jobs and thus increasing the agility with which we, we get work done and with which talent connects to work. Now. Now, you know, it's, it's, we've, John and I have had the question about, um, you know, work without jobs. Now, we're not saying in the near term that jobs are going to go away. But I think in William Gibson's infamous quote, you know, the future is here, it's just unevenly distributed. What we're seeing are many, many organizations applying the elements of this new work operating system to move to ever more agile ways of working. Um, You know, some have maybe cynically said that, uh, you know, this title is clickbait and actually far from it. Um, You know, what the title really points to is the growing inability of the current work operating system with its indexing and legacy of jobs um, and that core foundation of jobs being the elemental unit of work. And that by extension, that one to one relationship between a degree, a job and a job holder um, is is fundamentally 
incapable of keeping up with this with this emerging world of work. And I think what the book does is that it illustrates with these these four principles of the new work operating system, you know, what that actually looks like and how that's actually being realized by numerous organizations through the various cases that we have in the book. And I guess from from listening to you there, Arvin and, and John, you know, and, and obviously speaking to you before about these ideas, this seems like as you, I think the words you use, more agile, it's certainly much more flexible. It, you can see it actually much better for employees because it gives them a bit more choice, a bit more opportunity to the craft, I think, as you said, John, the, the, the work that they're doing. And it's better for, for organizations as well because it, you're more likely to be able, if you, you rather than fit lots of square pegs into round holes, um, you've yeah. actually got, you can adapt those shapes so that fit the, the gaps that you've got within your organization. So, you know, a follow up question either of you might want to take this, is this, being, is this being driven by technology or is technology helping to enable it? <laughs> I think in so many ways, I'm going to say both, David. Um, we, we, I remember our conversation with the editor. Uh, one, of the, um, uh, one of the, probably one of the motivations for readers of the book, uh, some of our colleagues who read the draft, for example, I'll, I'll mention by name Diane Gerson, the former head of HR at IBM, just because she was so helpful at the time that we were writing the book, it was one of those things where she and I were having regular chats anyway uh, with, with a number of people, as many of us did, as the pandemic you know, sort of made us all remote. And uh, Diane, among many others, said uh, basically something like, uh, we're pursuing agility, and obviously IBM doing a great job with it. And even as I think back to pursuing agility and look at this book, I realized that jobs were sometimes getting in the way and that, that it was this almost implicit assumption that we needed to end up with jobs or we needed to start and keep these jobs and then be agile. So agile was both a motivator and also becoming agile is a facilitator of this sort of thing. And I think it's the same way you take automation and you say, well, we start perhaps with, I think it's often sold by how many FTEs will you be redeploying? How many human FTEs can you redeploy because you used this automation, a robot, AI, et cetera? Leaders confronted with, you know, now they have to Im implement it, realize, well, that, that those FTEs are not re whole people. You know, we're not deploying whole people. I still need those people. They're just going to do something very different. So automation is a motivator. I think leaders don't realize what to ask for. They don't realize that what they need is someone to say, let me free you from the job, uh, from the job system. And then you'll see that you have options that, that you don't have before. So that's kind of the motivator, even if they don't know what the words are for what they need. And then once they see it, it's also a facilitator because automation then enables a reconstruction and deconstruction. Right. Thanks, John. Now, the book, as you, as you both highlighted, there's a lot of good case, cases, case studies in it. You know, I think that really helps bring things to life for people and, and inspire, you know, practitioners working in organizations. So we're going to talk about some of those now. Um, so, Ravin, if I come to you, can you share some examples of, of organizations who are doing this? You know, they were using this work operating system, you know, and what, impl what indications of a future system are you seeing and, and excited by? Yeah. So, so what I'll, let me do, let me do this, David, let me, for each of the elements of this work operating system, you know, we've got a series of cases. So let me uh, walk, walk through those and, and you'll get a sense of, you know, the cases and how they align to this work operating system. So the first yeah. element is this notion of work as deconstructed elements or tasks. 
And the example that we had there <clears throat> was Genentech. Um, Genentech is, um, you know, a subsidiary of Roche. And, and they actually used this, um, this notion of deconstruction and the, the sort of period we were in right in the middle of the pandemic as a way to create a much more equitable and inclusive approach to flexible working that went well beyond the traditional headlines of what a job title looked like and what a job description looked like to actually lead with this belief that there, is, there are opportunities for flexibility in all jobs. We just need to find the right ones based on a, on a detailed understanding of the work itself. So work as deconstructed elements was the first element um, and, and Genentech being the, the, a great example of using that starting point to, to move towards greater flexibility. The second element is this notion of work automation as optimizing task level combinations of human and automated work. And the example there was DHL and its use of a various types of robotics in its distribution facilities to optimize that human automation combination based on the specific nature of the work and creating the conditions to perpetually reinvent how automation played out in their facilities. The third element is this notion of work arrangements, including a boundaryless and democratized work ecosystem. And the example that we had there was work we've done with a very large insurance company that, like many, was struggling to get the right amount of digital talent in the right place at the right time. So you'd find these pockets of wealth and pockets of poverty. You know, all the great talent would go to customer analytics, not so many in maybe um, underwriting or, or claims. And so they actually blew up. Um, all of their digital roles and put them into this virtual cloud-based organization and use the marketplace as the fundamental mechanism for continuously matching skills to work um, and thus shifting from that traditional notion of where the job was the currency of work to increasingly where skills and capabilities were the currency of work. Um, the fourth um, element is the notion, notion that John just alluded to of work, workers as the whole person with an array of deconstructed capabilities and skills. So moving beyond the traditional headlines of what an individual in a job might, might bring. Um, and the, the case study here, and it's actually the capstone case for, for the book, um, is uh, the, the outstanding work that Greg Till, uh, the CHRO at Providence Health, has done with his colleagues um, and the work they've done to deconstruct the work of nurses right in the middle of this pandemic to enable the talent to keep optimizing their skills and flowing to the top of their license while continuously redeploying other tasks to other roles where there may be more plentiful supply, where there may be greater access to talent. So it was a great example. Um, and in fact, Providence is just an outstanding example, not just of this one element, David, but of, of all of the different elements, including automation, including just deconstruction at its most fundamental level. The fifth element of, of this new work operating system is the need to perpetually reinvent task project combinations and work arrangements beyond traditional employment. And this, we sort of illustrated this with um, with a number of cases, but probably the one that jumps out is throughout this book, uh, John and I have a running case study 
to illustrate all of the elements within the construct of a single organization. It's the yeah. distribution operations of a very large global retailer. And in for this particular element, it laid out the specifically the, the discipline required um, to create a game plan that ensures the perpetual reinvention of work in the enterprise. So specifically the process changes, activities and workflows, the cultural implications, you know, what does collaboration look like? What are behavioral norms? What are the talent implications in terms of skills and capabilities required to enable this perpetual reinvention of work? What's the structure and the organization of work? And then what are the technology implications? Not just the direct automation, but the enabling technology and the information systems required to sustain the work operating system. The, the sixth element, and I promise I'm getting to the end, there's only seven, um, uh, is sort of management and work coordination as collaborative hubs of teams and projects aligned around a central purpose and a mission and integrated through human and AI platforms and systems. And um, this is where we, we again, a number of examples, but um, tying back to your previous guest, Placide Jovert from um, Unilever, you know, we illustrated the uh, the work that we've done with Unilever to de- develop their framework for the future of work and the many great innovations that organization has developed on the heels of that uh, particular framework. And, you know, particularly the, the great progress they've made around building the discipline to perpetually reinvent work and increase the agility with which talent is connected to work, all while grounded in their broader purpose of uh, as an enterprise and their mission uh, towards their consumers and all their various stakeholders. And then the last dimension where is really where we go beyond the organization, looking at the social values and policies that enable and rely on fluid work arrangements and the holistic worker capability required to achieve sustainability, voice, equity, and inclusion. So thinking beyond the enterprise to the social implications of this new work operating system. And there are some great connections. I'll go back to my um, introduction, David, and the the work that the World Economic Forum is doing around both its charter for ethical and responsible platform work, um, as well as its new um, uh, recently launched uh, effort around new standards for work. So, you know, various case studies at different levels of altitude to kind of illustrate these seven elements of, of the work operating system. And it's interesting that, that the impacts you talked about there weren't just within the organization or for employees or workers, they're not all employees, of course, um, it's society as well. And that's a, that's a big, you know, it, you know, because people that work in organizations now, they want that, they want their organizations to have a positive benefit on society. So this is, you know, Talks very well to, what, to, 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 to what's in the book here. When we come back in just a moment, John and Ravin will share their thoughts on who benefits the most from a new work operating system and how to implement such a system. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by iPsychTech. Their CultureScope cloud application is one of the most advanced and scientific approaches to culture and behavior measurement to drive performance and manage risk throughout organizations. Their diagnostic methods are innovative, simple, accurate, and very efficient. What's really unique is that CultureScope applies behavioral data science to your specific organizational key performance metrics, allowing for the diagnosis and recommendations of specific actionable insights 
to make a sustainable difference. Using forward-looking predictive neural intelligence, CultureScope is able to recommend simple solutions to difficult problems and can provide a clear roadmap for culture implementation to maximize your impact and brand value. To find out more, head over to iPsychTech.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast with Ravin Jezuthazen and John Boudreau. Now, let's get back to the conversation. And John, before I turn to you to talk about how to implement such a system, either of you can answer this. Um, a lot of the people that listen to this program work, work in HR, um, you know, and I could definitely see, see this as, as your previous books are appealing to them. But who else are you targeting um, with this book? Who else do you think will read this book? Uh, well, if I, Robin, if I might, um, I think the goal, I think you're absolutely right. David, Robin and I are both uh, kind of birthed in HR and grateful and, and, uh, you know, have had marvelous careers due to support of people like you and others that might define themselves within HR. And that, you know, there's a, there's clearly, and we can talk about that, a lot of implications for this, just about, uh, the tectonic change in the way the HR systems work, et cetera. But I think I'll go back to my, uh, I, I think in, in the larger sense of my, at least my own sort of personal mission and why I stay with this would be to make work better generally. Uh, and, and for all those people that are spending the bulk of their lifetimes in something called work, often working with or in an organization, I think ultimately that would be, for me anyway, that runs across my whole 40 years if I think about what I'm really after. And so I think there's a there's a there's a leader here that would be a leader, frontline leader, a top leader, et cetera. We can talk more about the differences there, but this is going to have an you know we're seeing it with COVID, just in terms of frontline discussions about hybrid versus remote. Let's just take that one, and that is that is fundamentally really about work crafting. It's about the elemental parts of work and how you know would you put all the remote parts into a job and let someone do that job as remote. And take all the on-site parts and give that to someone who's on-site. That's kind of one simple example. Well, frontline leaders, at least in my experience with all of my clients, frontline leaders are really at the heart of that. There is no answer. There is really no policy that will solve remote hybrid. I think every every book by every thought leader I know from uh, Dan Pink to Linda Grattan, et cetera, is writing a book that basically says we don't know. And how do we deal with when we don't know whether it's regrets, whether it's uncertainty, et cetera. So that's one. These, there needs to be a language and a system for those frontline folks to engage in this discussion. And I think this notion of deconstruction, the work operating system we've discussed is an, is a part of the answer to that dilemma. Moving up, if, if we envision that some work will be more of a marketplace, that has immense implications for, let's say, higher level leaders that are going to see people flowing through projects that are, that are not going to have three people reporting to them, but rather will have three people that they oversee, that they mentor, but those people are going to be moving around and they're going to see others coming through on a short term basis. So what is, how do you communicate your sense of purpose? What is your role if you're not just a direct supervisor and you know they're going to be with you for several years and there's a rhythm of we do our performance management once a year, et cetera. Well, get ready to do that always. You're always going to be giving feedback and people are always going to be moving through. Again, not everywhere, but in some places. And then I think for top leaders, again, 
I believe that they are they are interested in agility. They are interested in addressing the evolution of the labor market. You know, that's now front and center. That's not a HR issue anymore. And that labor market evolution, the increasing empowerment of workers, the increasing desire to have flexibility, collaboration, et cetera, to pay attention to well-being. Again, this new work operating system is not meant to be a complete answer, but I think one needs to begin with the opportunity to deconstruct jobs, to see workers as a whole person, to see qualifications as elements of learning rather than degrees. If we can give people that freedom and give them a language for that, I think there are just optimization and, and, and uh, solution options that appear out, as opposed to when, which I think is mostly the case, people are kind of stuck in this legacy system of jobs because they haven't had a way to think about it another way, for example. So that's, that's kind of, as you can see, I'm pretty, I'm pretty enthusiastic and excited about this. And I think it is one element, this ability to say, wait a minute, what if I let you, uh, take the elements of the jobs or the elements of the workers? What if I let you use those and let them stand on their own? Now, what might a solution be? It may look radical, but let's at least allow ourselves to see it. That's great. So, so leaders clearly have an important role, whether they're frontline leaders in an organization or, you know, right up to the CEO, really, to, to make this system work. What about HR? As I said, a lot of people listening to this, to this um, program will be working in HR. They may be CHROs. They may be working in people analytics. They may be working in workforce planning roles. You know, what are the implications for people in the HR profession? You know, if I'm in HR, what am I going to do differently to, to, to adapt to this work system? And, and maybe deeper, if I'm an analytics person, what do I have to be aware of? Robin, let me let you take the first pass at that one. Oh, oh go, go ahead, John. Okay. Uh, well, I, let me just start with, um, first of all, as Robin said, the future is and will be unevenly distributed. So the first thing I think I would say, David, is there's going to be plenty of, of plenty of work in HR within the uh, traditional system. Lots of work is going to be embedded in jobs. Lots of the systems that are job based are going to work just fine for that kind of work. I think the message we would have is HR, probably an HR is best suited for this, is going to need to learn how to find the edges, as I would call them, where, where what is needed is this new work operating system, but what is available is the old operating system. And, and there are plenty of clues to that. We can't find the skill sets we need. These job descriptions don't seem to fit anymore. We have automation coming. People seem to be crafting their work in ways that don't fit the job. We have an internal marketplace like Unilever. Everybody wants to do these passion-motivated projects. Those are examples of where HR can say, when we see this, this frustration is in part because of the legacy of the job system. And we need, and then I think HR needs to step forward then. And now it gets to be a big deal and say, how are we prepared to, as P and I said, the fundamental purpose of HR is probably best to teach others how to think better and make better decisions about people. And, and so I think it's up to HR to step forward and say, here is your option. We're prepared with a system that can track tasks and projects and allow them to reformulate it. We can track the whole person as capabilities or skills. And, and we're prepared to allow you a system that lets those stand alone. And then I think, as Robin mentioned, a system that could tap a larger ecosystem 
than just people with employment contracts. That's a big deal. You know, that, that affects virtually the entire talent life cycle, which is why I'm not going to specifics, David. Take any element of it. It's sourcing, pay, development, uh, even, even termination in the sense of we want to keep a relationship for when you come back. Uh, and all the elements of well-being and, and culture and purpose, et cetera. I think you can, if you touch any of them and say, what if we needed to teach our leaders to work in a system that is elemental at tasks and projects and capabilities, and we didn't have jobs, what would our role be? It's, it's, an, it's an immensely good and optimistic picture of HR, and I fervently hope that HR is the profession that is prepared to step up and provide that new way of thinking when it's needed. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, John, you've described previously that HR can be a hub of agile experimentation. You may not remember writing those yeah. words, but it definitely resonated yeah. with me. And, and no. that, that really yeah. links well to this, doesn't it? It really does. And Robin, I'll let you get a word in edgewise here. But that, uh, you know, my colleague Pete Ramstead and I late last year began thinking about what do we want to say about what's happening. And I was working with a lot of clients and they they were working on policies. You know, should it be two days or three days? And, you know, what are the what are the criteria that you check off to be remote? And everyone was concluding this is happening faster than a policy can keep track of. And to be honest, David, I got tired of telling them, please go tell your C-suite that they're asking the wrong question when they ask you for a policy. That's a little difficult. I, I mean, I sometimes did it just to be, you know, then they can shoot me with arrows. And, uh, but, but what we came to was the positive way to think about it is that this is, this is like applying agile product design or software design to work. And in both of those areas, you need to see the elements of the software, the elements of the product to find solutions. And in the same way, you need to see the elements of the work, the elements of the worker to find these solutions. And, and yes, David, I would say my fervent hope is that HR steps up and says, we're prepared to be the hub for the tools and, and, the, and the, the, um, the integration of experiments everywhere about work. What's working? What's not working? You know, where should we use scrums? Where should we use uh, Six Sigma? Where should we use agile tools? I'd love for HR to be the place leaders go and say, okay, I realize I'm in a big experiment. Now help me. And Ravin, turning to you and, and sort of nuance to this, you know, what's the technological technological requirement, if I could get the words out, um, and, and also the data that, that could underpin such a system? Yeah, you know, it's, it, you know the, at the heart of this pivot, right, just to pick up on where uh, John you know, left off, David, is not to be too trivial about it, but it really is a fundamental reframing of HR's role from being a steward of employment to being a steward of work. And the lens that that is brought to all of those issues that John talked about, you know, hiring, development, deployment, etc., is one that is completely different. And I think, you know, related to that, the, the data and the technology required to make this new work operating system work start to transcend many of the traditional metrics that maybe HR might have used in the past to looking at the broader scope of different work options. You know, one of the, as an example, one of the metrics we talk about, um, a simplistic metric um, is, you know, do we understand the total cost of work? And somewhat simplistically, do we understand the different work options that we have and how do we get them on a level playing field as it relates to their accounting treatment 
So, you know, we've got labor costs today, the cost of employees and jobs, that's owned by HR. You've got the cost of the gig workers, and, and, you know, that's often owned by procurement. You've got strategy, maybe, that engages in its relationships with the RPA or AI vendor. Many organizations have stood up their own RPA and AI capabilities, often sort of capitalized. You know, so how do we get an annual operating cost for all of those assets so that we can make those choices of, you know, I'm going to trade off an employee in a job today for one of these options or vice versa. Um, so, you know, having metrics that sort of are transversal in nature that cut across all of these, like this measure of total cost of work, I think, that we talk about in the book is, is I think, a good one. I think also having, you know, to your question about the technology, um, what the, the technology that allows you to rapidly deconstruct work and look at the various options, there's a variety of tools out there. Um, including, you know, from uh, from some of the consulting firms, including Willis Towns Watson, as well as Mercer. Um, so the opportunity to get beyond the jobs, technologies that look at the different work options, you know, what is the cost of different types of automation? What's the accessibility, the applicability to different types of work? Um, but being able to sort of integrate very disparate data sets, because that's the state of play today. Right, the data required to for this new work operating system is is you know is is distributed across a number of different um, domains. One is you know responsibility within an organization, as I mentioned a second ago. The other is um, across different providers in terms of insights into these various work options. So I do think we're starting to see some traction. Um, and some movement, but there is, I think, a fair bit of runway um, on the part of many organizations to get integrated data sets and integrated technology to underpin this new work operating system. Right. It's almost like from workforce planning to work planning, and it, it becomes more complex, arguably, and, and there's more pieces to, to, to pull into the, into the jigsaw, uh, as it were. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you're looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the MyHR Future Academy. It's a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you'll see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gaps, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Now let's go back to the conversation with John and Ravin as they discuss the societal impact of a new approach to work. I'm conscious of time, but I would love to hear a little bit more about the societal element, John. So what, what does this new approach to work mean for society more broadly, for, for communities? Yeah, I think we, um, I, I, so again, starting simply, if we say, imagine that your organization is in the middle of a big ecosystem of work, people are going to pass in and out of your boundary, and, you're, and they won't always have an employment contract. You're going to be reinventing work at the task level, um, uh, so, and, and you're going to be trying to look at the whole person and all of their capabilities as they move across and within this very fluid system. Um, right now, let's take the U.S., um, if you want to talk about improving work, 
you almost every leader that talks about that will talk about good jobs. And indeed, some have said, a few people have said, boy, that title work without jobs is fascinating because isn't it about the insecurity of workers who even who have full-time jobs have realized that that's no guarantee of something like lifetime security or something like that. And so that's the downside is, is aren't we in a very uh, uh, exploitive, difficult world where no one has an attachment? But of course, the opposite of that would be a world in which society creates a safety net. So that that moves along with you, you know, you're the uh, the Unilever example from your earlier inside an organization was we'll keep you as an employee. And now we're going to free you up to take on projects and we'll figure out how to pay you, how to track your development, etc. Well, I think across the world, you see different experiments with this. And as Robin said, I like the World Economic Forum's metaphor of platform based work, that this is more like a platform marketplace. and. And yes, today, often platform workers have less security. There may be more, uh, we might even say more exploitation, et cetera, although some of them are immensely happy with the security that comes with owning their own skill set. So we sh portable pensions, uh, a portable skill passport, so that when you move through, these are the kinds of things. And, and I guess in a nutshell, I went, David, Every time I hear an, a brilliant leader who wants to improve work say good jobs, because you immediately limit your options to the kind of thing where someone must have an employment contract and be a member of this organization. And I think when you step back and look at the way work is evolving, there are so many instances where that is simply not going to be the arrangement. And, it, and I think it's really up to society to step back and say, Let's talk about good work and not just about good jobs. Yeah, well, let's, let's, let's pivot to some final guidance. Um, so, Ravin, I'll come to you. You know, Final guidance to organizations. How should leaders get started building this new approach to work? And, and maybe another question is, when should they get started? Yeah, so, David, I would say three things. One is, um, in terms of getting started, one is start by adopting the work design principles that we talked about at the beginning as a touchstone for all your efforts. You know, <clears throat> the, the, the four principles were start with the work um, and not the existing jobs. Um, combine humans and automation and not just be looking to replace humans with automation. Um, consider the full array of work engagements, as John just uh, spoke to, whether that, that's employment, whether that's gig workers, internal gig workers, alliances, freelancers, outsourcers, you name it. But what are the, what's the full breadth of options available? And then lastly, allow talent to flow to work but, and not just be limited to fixed traditional jobs. So those are the four principles. The second would be, you know, um, follow the change process that we, we talk about in the book. Start by identifying a high-value trigger for, for creating a prototype that will illustrate the power and the value of the new work operating system. Some of the typical triggers that we've seen work well in the organizations we looked at are, one, the most obvious, where you've got an operating challenge, where you've got a constraint like a bottleneck in processes or talent pipelines, where you've got new technology that you've bought and now you're trying to figure out how do we redesign work around this technology. And then Lastly, it might be a shift in organizational priorities. John talked about the numerous organizations during the pandemic who shifted from 
producing cars to producing ventilators. Um, and then also ensure you've got the right metrics in place, David, to come back to you know something you touched on at the beginning. You've got the right metrics in place to measure success beyond the usual suspects. And then the third of this is deploy the new work operating system along the lines of the seven principles that I touched on. So hopefully three ways for organizations to get started. Yeah, excellent. Some great advice, I think, there for, for people listening. And I, sorry, John. The practical. Let me just add, David, I think for me, working with my clients and others now and beginning to put these ideas in, and this has been true really for 40 years, I think, there's an opportunity for HR to step back and have what I would call private offstage conversations about these things. So I think as we talk about it, you know, the, what we what we want to see eventually, of course, is that these things emerge and that leaders and workers interact with them, et cetera. And that's going to happen. But I think right now, the HR community in an organization could get together when they're at their offsite, et cetera. And an exercise would be, where is where do we have these these indicators that the current system isn't working? You know, and bring that case to the front. Somebody report on that in their business unit and just say the, say the frustrations. And then let's turn over here and let's look at these ideas, perhaps from work without jobs. And, and just in our offsite, let's say, what if we tapped other kinds of workers? What if we allowed these job elements to flow freely and we could reconstruct them? What if we thought about the people doing these jobs as an entire set of capabilities rather than just their qualifications for the jobs? You know, things like that. What if we thought about our degree requirements? This is the, this is one people are already doing. And we deconstructed the degree into learning or learning elements. And what if we said, well, what if we didn't have to take a degree? We could just hire people with the elements we need or with most of them and then train them. I think that's this deconstruction exercise that I'm finding when I work with organizations. It's often the first step is to hypothetically almost say, well, let's at least imagine. And, and very often what you find is there's a solution in there that you can then bring forward and say, you know, we're not going to force you to deconstruct as a first step. We're going to solve your problem as a first step. And then you'll realize as a leader, oh, that was a deconstruction, wasn't it? You know, sort of like a, a skilled controller in finance doesn't force a leader to learn the financial equations, but they constantly find better cash flow. They constantly find a way to increase revenue. And then the leader says, how did you do that? And they're ready to be taught and learn the principles. And in this case, it's principles like the four Robin described. Start somewhere where there's a problem that needs to be solved, where the system isn't working, because you'll have a more receptive audience in the business that's prepared to work with you to do it and prove the value and then you can communicate that out I guess so John I'm going to come to you for the the last question and this is a question we're asking everyone on this series um you know how does behavioral science help improve the workplace well, thank you, David. And obviously, that's very near and dear to my heart. If we define behavioral science as kind of the scholarly work, so to speak, the, the work that I did as a professor pretty much for my whole career, the primary work of my colleagues. And I think we see elements of this already. There's, there, it turns out that there's a significant literature on the idea of work crafting. Now, that literature is written from a world where people had jobs, and it was looking at the crafting they did inside those jobs. Uh, we have a, a whole one chapter I've written for my colleague Benjamin Schneider was about engagement and the literature on engagement. There's decades and decades of literature on job engagement, job satisfaction, etc. We the behavioral science world could begin to think about task or project 
engagement. And, and how would that look if we could take apart the job and say, oh, these parts really motivate you. These parts really frustrate you rather than just one measure of the whole job. So I think if you, if you start with the idea of work elements and you, st- and then you start perhaps with the idea of a work ecosystem that's beyond employment, there are lots of behavioral science questions that could be reframed to take past work where we, we know a lot of things about motivation and engagement, et cetera, and reframe them to reflect perhaps the atomized elements. Um, you know, when one example is, a, is, I hope people will contact me if they want to get involved. My colleague Ben Schneider and I have developed an instrument based on his work on uh, work automation uh, engagement, work automation climate. And the idea there is to get a sense of whether the workers are prepared and trust the organization to do work automation in a way that they can engage with. Or on the other hand, do they feel threatened? So, so you can see, for me, I'm finding a lot of, I'm finding it's very helpful to me to look at work that's already been done, but that was understandably developed with the idea of a job and employment as the focus in behavioral science and ask ourselves, could behavioral science take that and in a sense, deconstruct it or apply it to deconstruction to fit the new work operating system? And back to your point about the mission of kind of making work better, using behavioral science to to show that moving away from the job can actually help to do that. So indeed, so to really good. It's always an absolute delight to talk to both of you. Even better when you're together. <laughs> uh, four <laughs> books, four books in. Thanks for being a guest again on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. I'm going to come to each of you now and, and, and so you can let listeners know how they can stay in touch with you, follow you on social media, maybe find out more about work without jobs. So, so Ravin, I'll, I'll come to you first. Um, I can be followed on, on Twitter um, at Ravin J. Suthasan, as well as LinkedIn. Um, and then uh, also my, my website, uh, RavinJSuthasan.com. Great. Thanks, Ravin. And John, you've got the final word. <laughs> well, in terms of contact, uh, my website is uh, drjohnboudreau.com. That's a great way to get started in. Robin mentioned the book website, and you can find pretty much all my contact information and bio, and we sort of store things like this video, if you'll let us, and other things there. So drjohnboudreau.com, also the Center for Effective Organizations at the University of Southern California is another good way to search and find my academic affiliation and the work of my colleagues there as well. Thank you, David. You're on LinkedIn as well, aren't you, John? So LinkedIn, Twitter, yep. John Robin, absolutely fantastic. Best of luck the book. Um, I've already, yeah. I've, I've already read an extract from it, and I'm definitely looking forward to getting a, a, a final copy of it as well. Um, you know, I know, I know it'll be a tremendous success, and I look forward to speaking to you both again. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Thank David. you, David. Thanks, David. Much appreciation. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did enjoy listening, please do rate the show with five stars on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with your friends and colleagues via social media. We rely on your feedback and support to keep being able to make the podcast. For more from us at Insight 222, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and you can sign up for our weekly newsletter too by going to myhrfuture.com. This is the last episode for Series 20. But we'll be back next week for the first episode of Series 21, where I'll be joined by Jason Averbuck, CEO and co-founder at LeapGen. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and take care.